this cop got off to a very rough start. We're almost halfway through, but in a way, the steepest part of the climb is still ahead of us. The sense is clear. For us to meet our global climate goals and prevent the worst impacts of the climate crisis, we need to get out of fossil fuels as quickly as possible. We have seen business pledges kind of go up in recent years, but we also seen emissions go up year on year. And so this huge gap between the kind of public will, the consumer appetite, and the pledges being made. This is the Lid is On, the show that has been rebranded temporarily as the COP27 podcast, or the COP27 show. This is the second, uh, what would you call it, uh, TV and, what's the word? I'm standing, vodcast. Oh, no, vodcast, thank yes. you very much. It's a vodcast now. <laughs> so you can watch this on the United Nations YouTube channel, and of course, it's, as usual, a podcast on all of the main podcast platforms. I'm Connor Lennon, by the way. And I'm Laura Quiñones. And Lara will be very helpfully taking us through some of the big issues of the last few days because we're midway through COP27. This is the midway or the, the halftime show, if you will. A lot has gone on so far, but there's still plenty of hard, grinding work, especially for negotiators uh, coming up. We've had thematic days, and we'll be uh, giving you the overview of what we think are the main messages from those days. We've also got some great guests on today's show. Selwyn Hartz, the Secretary General's Special Advisor on Climate Change. We had a chat with him, didn't we, on our last podcast uh, just before we left <laughs> in for New York yeah. Shake, back in New York and we're going to get an update from him and we're also going to talk with one of the negotiators that's actually it's probably in one of these rooms that are close to us talking not right now about what is going to be the outcome of this COP27 and I got to speak to Lily Cole the former supermodel you might wonder what on earth she's doing here well the fashion industry is one of the big polluters on the planet much more so than you might think And today is decarbonization day, so we're looking at how all the different sectors can try and uh, bring down their carbon emissions. So we'll be hearing what she has today about the links between fashion and sustainability. But first, let's get back to our recap of the week. Lara, what were, you, for you, the main talking points this week? I feel like the main talking point this week was definitely adaptation and loss and damage. There's going to be a this, There has been a big call on loss and damage, especially coming from the youth. And coming from the fact that we are in Africa right now, and this is an Africa cop, uh, we've heard this so much for so many um, NGOs and also some of the negotiators, you know, the group of the G77, who is pushing really, really hard for a loss and damage adaptation fund. So, so let's clear that up, loss and damage. What are, we, what are we talking about exactly here? So loss and damage uh, are, well, they're referring specifically Uh, that countries that are now getting the worst of the climate impacts like Pakistan, Bangladesh and all these island states that are suffering uh, so much with these losses and damage, damages caused by hurricanes or by excessive floods and all these things that climate change brings, um, they, want, they want to be, let's say, compensated for it. Why? Because they don't contribute as much emissions As, as the big polluters, like big countries like the United States and China. So they feel that uh, they should be, they should be pay, paid for that. But there's been real pushback, hasn't there, over the years from these richer, more developed countries on, on they don't want to be on the legal hook for, for <laughs> paying back a certain amount of money. Um, but this year, interestingly, we've had so many cops, at least COP27 after all. This is the first time that the issue of loss and damage actually made it onto the agenda. Yes, it was the first time. And And there's also ways to do it, right? Like the Secretary General at the beginning of the week, he, 
he uh, sent a very special uh, message, very powerful message, asking for, to, for countries to tax the fossil fuel companies and then use that money to give it to these people that are suffering the worst impacts of climate change. So that's a solution. It doesn't necessarily have to come from the taxpayer, well, the regular taxpayer in this country, but the fossil fuel companies. Another word we've been hearing every day in pretty much every session, greenwashing. Oh, yeah. There is, um, there's always been a call for, let's say, denouncing uh, greenwashing. Greenwashing, obviously, is uh, when certain companies or certain countries pretend to be doing, uh, promising uh, that their carbon emissions are going to go down, and they say, yes, we're zero carbon, but in reality, uh, uh, the, the reality is different. So uh, another call from the Secretary General was that, that we need to stop the greenwashing, no more greenwashing allowed. And um, that also came from the first report of the Net Zero Expert Group. Uh, uh, in last year, he decided that 11, 17 experts, if I, I think it's 17 experts, uh, they came together um, to review all these net zero promises. You know, we have all these companies at COP26, there was like um, promise after promise that they're gonna go carbon free. Yeah, they call them uh, in the jargon non-state actors, so companies, also local governments come into that, yes. regions, anyone that, that's not a national government. Yeah, all no. these commitments they're making. Exactly, so what they did is review all these promises and kind of make it clear what are the parameters to call yourself as a company or as a city net zero. Uh, you cannot, it's not only about reducing emissions, it's also about stop doing things against uh, nature. Like for example, uh, you cannot say you're net zero if you're still um, cutting trees or causing deforestation or uh, doing extractive activities. So, uh, or supporting uh, companies that do. You know, they find out that there were many companies that they were saying they weren't net zero, but then they have some other like uh, a joint of like associated companies that were still doing these things. So now they have kind of like a how-to guide of how to call yourself net zero. Well, when it boils down to it, it's always uh, the big picture adaptation, how we can adapt to this changing climate and mitigation, which is all about the fact that we have to rapidly bring down emissions. So on the adaptation side, the Secretary General made another announcement early on in this COP about early warning systems. And basically, this is, this, this is about making sure that people have um, adequate warning when uh, a, a climate shock is about to happen. It could be a tsunami or a hurricane. And they say it could save millions of lives. Yeah, it can. It definitely can save millions of lives. It's saving millions of lives now, but there are still many countries, especially obviously in developing countries, that don't have the resources uh, to put in place this early warning systems that are like very, very important uh, to save lives. Well, we spoke, as we said, to Selwyn Hart, the Secretary General's Special Advisor on Climate Change, before COP, and he gave us a great, great overview. as a real expert. And he has been here the whole week, of course. He's going to be here right through to the end. And we thought it'd be good at this midpoint to catch up with him to get a flavor of how things have been going. And here's what he said. It's been an extremely hectic week, but um, nevertheless, I think it's been a very productive week. Um, we are seeing um, some degree of progress in the formal negotiations. We also launched um, two important initiatives of the Secretary General uh, this week, his report from the high-level expert group on net zero commitments, um, as well as um, a very comprehensive action plan aimed at providing early warning systems uh, for all, 
over the course of the next five years. And we've seen countries um, come together on a few important themes. Um, there, there was an agreement that loss and damage, that the issue of loss and damage finance um, should be on the agenda of the COP. There was a after a rocky start. After after a rocky start, but um, I believe that it sent a good political signal um, to countries on the front lines of the climate crisis that an issue that was dear to them um, will be finally addressed in a very substantive way. So, yeah. Were you surprised that loss and damage got on the agenda? And what is it actually going to mean in terms of finally getting an agreement? No, um, I wasn't very surprised that it got on the agenda because ahead of the COP, um, there were signals coming from a number of key developed countries that they would not prevent the issue being placed on the agenda. Um, but they had concerns over prejudging either the discussions or a potential outcome. Now, having it on the agenda is absolutely great. It's an important first step, but it needs to deliver substantively. And that is going to be where we're likely to see countries having divergent views on, on, on basically what should be the outcome of this COP. The Secretary General is no fan of the fossil fuel industry. He's made that pretty clear mm -hmm. several times. Yet we've been hearing some developing countries saying, well, hang on, we have these fossil fuel reserves we need to develop and pushing the idea of using gas. There's been a lot of lobbying around gas. Is that something that concerns you? Well, you, you know, um, the sense is clear. For us to meet our global climate goals and prevent the worst impacts of, um, of the climate crisis, we need to get out of fossil fuels as quickly as possible. There, 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 there is no argument um, around the science at all. Of course, for developing countries, um, especially poor developing countries, they will need assistance um, to make this transition to a renewable energy future. And I honestly believe that the focus should be on how can we remove the barriers that these developing countries face to accelerating the transition to renewables. So we need urgently, the international community, all of finance needs to throw the kitchen sink at solving this problem. How can we reduce the cost of capital to make these investments in renewable energy for the developing world less expensive so that they can accelerate the renewable energy transition. The Climate Insights report came out yesterday, it comes out every year, and the first thing they said was it's a myth to imagine that we can adapt our way out of this crisis. Is there a fear that all this talk of adaptation, valid talk about adaptation mm -hmm. and climate finance is overshadowing the, the, the central core issue, which is that emissions have to come down? I would argue that we need an all-of-the-above approach. We definitely need to reduce emissions, but we also need to recognize that in many parts of the world um, already, across the world, in every country, but in many parts of the world, um, adaptation is a 
here and now problem. It's a here and now challenge. So we need to address both the mitigation aspect of this challenge, reducing emissions, as well as the adaptation side, which is about protecting people and safeguarding livelihoods. We need to address both sides of this equation with a high degree of urgency and ambition. And we can't, and, and, and it can't be one or the other. It must be both with an equal degree of urgency and ambition because we have to absolutely invest in saving lives you know after what we've seen in places like pakistan and nigeria um, and other parts of the developing world as well as in developed countries um, but we need to solve the central question of emissions and and this is why the renewable energy revolution needs to be the number one priority that's on the mitigation agenda that was Selwyn Hart, the UN Secretary General's Special Advisor on Climate Change, speaking to me a little earlier today. Now, did you know, in a previous life, Selwyn was himself a negotiator? Of course I did. Oh, <laughs> thought I'd catch you out, but no. Yes, he was a negotiator for some time. He still has many friends who are still negotiators today. And our next guest is one of them. And in fact, she survived 12 cops. Even Selwyn was impressed. Yeah. Ruana Hayes. She's from Trinidad and Tobago, which is also a small developing island state. Uh, she's actually from the Association of Small Developing Island States. And uh, she told us, what is it like to be a negotiator? Being a negotiator is tough. It's tough work. Uh, it's very demanding, especially at COPs where, you know, there's a lot of pressure to finalize agendas, to reach agreements. Uh, you spend very, very long hours closeted in rooms with colleagues, um, sometimes having a circular discussion. And you also have to, you know, you have to respond to the political mandate that's given to you to reach an agreement. So it's very, very demanding work to be a negotiator in this process. Is there enough understanding outside of what you're doing or do you think that there's a real disconnect? Well, I think there's a definite disconnect. I mean, even the way, even the way we speak in this process is difficult to communicate outside of the process, right? Um, we have fancy acronyms for everything. Uh, you know, some of the issues that we discuss and argue over are very arcane. Of course, they all have real-world consequences, um, but it's, it's quite difficult, I think, to explain exactly how the process works and how it's designed to deliver. Um, most people think if you're negotiating, then you negotiate towards an agreement at the end. They think about it in the sense of, you know, a bilateral, contractual, business type of negotiation process, but multilateral negotiation is very, very different, uh, and it's a lot more complex. And then when you add on top of that, the complexity of the issue of climate change itself, which encompasses everything, uh, yeah, it, um, it, it, gets, it gets even more difficult to understand. Well, let's come to this COP now. We're talking almost, almost halfway through. Give me a sense of how things have gone for you. This COP got off to a very rough start. Um, yes, we're almost halfway through, but in a way, the steepest part of the climb is still ahead of us. Uh, Why is that? Well, because um, 
coming down to the end of this week on Saturday we close the sort of technical level discussions that are happening in the subsidiary bodies and at that point we'll have an idea of you know which issues are have completed their mandate more or less and which issues we might leave off for another time and which issues need to be elevated to ministers for political engagement and decision and once we get into that mode of work um, Everything about the way we've been operating so far changes in terms of how the process is run because now ministers become involved and um, we get into the most difficult issues of the day with more of a laser focus. So, so it, it becomes the steepest part of the hill because at that point, you know, the success or not of the COP is hanging in the balance. And is there a particular issue that you're all saying, OK, we really want to make big progress on this Definitely. Um, you know, the baseline is we absolutely must make progress on mitigation action. Linked to the mitigation action is this question of loss and damage, which, you know, has emerged here as the, the big issue of the day. Uh, we had a difficult time ensuring that it was even going to be on the agenda at this COP, and a lot of compromises were made to ensure that we could even start on time having that issue included, and now it's included. The big question is what's going to come of that discussion. Uh, and I think expectations are very different. Yeah, you've got regard. it on the agenda, but um, is there any, is there any uh, compromise possible between what expectations of developing countries, small islands like your country, and the rich countries that you know, you're looking to, to pay this loss and damage money? Uh, you've been very far apart. Are you sensing there's any way you can find some agreement? Agreement is always possible. <laughs> It's an occupational hazard that you have to be an eternal optimist in this process. Ruana Haynes, climate negotiator from the Association of Small Island Developing States, she just told us what is it like to be a negotiator and, well, definitely not easy, right? Big surprise. It's yeah. really, really tough. <laughs> well, that was a great look back at last week. Let's come to today. We have themes every day. Today's theme is decarbonization. And you might be surprised, or maybe you're not surprised because you know everything, it seems, <laughs> that fashion is one of the big polluting industries. You might think of things like steel or, or some of that concrete, but fashion is incredibly polluting. So I spoke to Lily Cole the other day, who you may know, a former supermodel and now environmental activist. She was moderating a session at one of the meeting rooms, actually this one just behind us here a little earlier, on how we can make the fashion industry more sustainable. We're encouraged as a society to, to really just buy more clothes than we need to and replace and kind of circulate clothes more often than we need to. And unless we reform business models so that businesses can make money without using virgin materials, without producing new products every, every, every second, um, we're, we're going to be in trouble even if we manage to swap to more environmentally friendly materials. So a lot of the sustainable fashion movement, like many other industries, like the car industry, is looking at replacing materials, um, looking at labour standards, really, really important work. Um, part of what with the sustainability pledge we're also trying to encourage, like better transparency so we can reform supply chains to be better. But that, I think, piece alone won't solve the problem unless we're also thinking about business models, circularity, um, and also what metrics we want to grow and not being narrowly focused on economic growth only. Like all of our industries, it's a very complex problem that needs lots of different ways of thinking about solutions. And do people in the industry, frankly, do they care? I mean, that's, I think, equivalent to asking, do humans care? <laughs> I think that most humans care. Um, But they have the say, power to change something. All. 
Yeah, but you could say that for the whole of humanity, right? That, like, you know, why are we not changing? Do humans not care? I'd say most humans do care. But I think that there are lots of different factors going on. We're, like, we're stuck in systems, you know, that, like, we're, we're sort of, like, puppeted by quite often for economic reasons. Um, we're influenced by the media and the messages that we hear, the normalization, for example, of fast fashion, the normalization that throwing clothes away. You know, like, if you actually stop and think about it for a second, at what point did it become normal to throw clothes away? Um, to throw chargers away, to throw furniture away, or any of the you know clothes rails, all of I mean clothes hangers, all of the stuff, the material stuff that we're buying and using, it's become incredibly normal to treat in a disposable way and to assume it's all right for it to be really, really cheaply. To not question why how things can be so cheap, you know, there's a line if, if something's so cheap, someone else is paying. Um, anyway, I think those messages from our society for decades is is also what we're each fighting, and I don't think it's that people don't care. I think it's just. Um, decades worth of misinformation and um, normalization of, of practices that uh, uh, amount really actually to ecocide. Um, stop ecocide being the, the badge that I'm wearing today. So where should the pressure come from, do you think? Should it come from consumers? I think consumers have a really important role to play in terms of adding pressure and we're seeing that already. You know, um, the searching for, for terms like sustainable fashion online have grown exponentially in recent years. The appetite for understanding the impacts of brands' products, whether it's in food, fashion, um, electronics, is definitely on the rise. Um, but I really don't think it should rest on consumers, ultimately. I don't think it's fair on consumers for them to bear the responsibility because it's incredibly complex and complicated to understand how things are made, especially when there's a lack of transparency and increasing amounts of greenwashing. And I just don't think that relying on consumers will deliver this pace and scale of change that we really need right now. Um, we have seen consumer demand go up. We have seen business pledges kind of go up in recent years. But we also seen emissions go up year on year. And so this huge gap between the kind of public will, the consumer appetite, and the pledges being made, but the reality being delivered is, is vast. And for that to be addressed, I think we need to look more at legislation and policy reforms to really regulate um, against the sixth mass extinction. That was Lily Cole, former fashion model and now an environmental activist. She's also an advisor for the UN Economic Commission for Europe. Now, this whole issue of fashion and sustainability, it feeds into today's theme, which is decarbonisation. And basically every economic sector has to pull the carbon emissions somehow out of their activities. And these are, these are all activities that we need to survive, whether it's concrete or steel, very polluting, but essential to our way of life. Exactly. And there are obviously industries that for them it's very hard to do this transition. So they need a lot of help. Well, let's talk about, for example, steel, uh, concrete, um, the transport. Um, and even oil and gas, because although we, you know, we know, we're no fans of fossil fuels at the UN, but let's face it, at the moment we are heavily dependent on them. Yeah, so they need to be part of the transition. And today was a big push about uh, technologies, like finding new technologies so that these, co these uh, companies on these sectors can actually start powering themselves by renewable energy. Um, also, I gotta say something. And say is, it, come yeah, on, Mara. That is that once again we saw a big power of the youth today outside, and these holes are just behind us. Um, yes, as we, as we established yesterday, you see yourself as part of the youth, and yeah. me definitely not part of the youth. Are not? <laughs> Anyhow, um, yeah, the youth was making a big call today, and actually was pretty, pretty strong in the sense that um, the Africa, obviously, we're at an Africa cop, like I said at the beginning of, of this podcast, and they are asking for climate justice. 
and today there was this group of um, um, activists from Nigeria and they said that if global leaders don't keep the fossil fuels on the ground what's gonna go, who's gonna go to COP28 from Africa it's gonna be just corpses so it's it's it is a strong message but I think um, it really it really kind of summarizes what we've seen this week here at COP27. Well there's still many more days to go in this COP27 as we heard from Selwyn and Rana Haynes it's going to get really tricky as the days go on as we get closer to the crunch time when at some point a decision will have to be made. A final outcome that everyone is expecting to have a loss and damage found. Loss and damage just remember that phrase loss and damage you'll be hearing a lot more of it from us over the next few days on the podcast which is going out every day throughout COP27 and we'll have another podcast a video roundup at the end. Thanks for being with us. I'm Connor Lennon. And I'm Laura Quinones.